0: Acts chapter 6. Uh, you can actually find that if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles on page 914. So, Acts chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. Uh, one of the real pleasures of being a parent is watching your children grow. Uh, don't get me wrong, there is something truly special about bringing home that squishy newborn. But there is also something wonderful about watching a person grow and mature that's truly delightful. Uh, it is intriguing to me to watch that little unique personality come out in all sorts of ways. And it's satisfying to see them learn and wonder at all the amazing things that this world has to offer. It's really, it's, it's humbling uh, to see how they pick up on things that you do, both the good and the bad. Now, Ellie and I are only three years into this, but in the time that we've had as parents, I've really come to appreciate uh, each stage of our kids' development for what it is. It seems like each stage has gone so quickly, so we're learning to savor the moment, even the messiness of it all, but it's also exciting to see uh, how they change, how they grow, how they're maturing and developing. Each new milestone is exciting. And as much as I'd like to hit the pause button and keep them little, uh, the truth is that kids aren't supposed to remain kids forever. Children are first and foremost a blessing from the Lord. They are His. They are a gift entrusted to parents, to steward, and to raise up in the fear and the knowledge and the love of God. Arrows look pretty in a quiver, but they really fulfill their purpose when they're placed on the string and they're shot into their target. And the purpose of parenting is to guide, shape, and hone our children into godly maturity and trusting them into the benevolent hands of the God who first gave them to us to see how he glorifies his name in and through them. Now, parenting for all its joys can be hard. There's some pain involved. It is costly, but it's worth it. And just as God has designed kids to grow and to mature, so He has also designed for believers and for local churches to grow and mature as well. Up into the point, uh, up into this point, really in the Book of Acts, uh, we have seen Luke focusing on telling us really about the birth of the church. It is exciting. It's kind of squishy, and it is it is it, it's 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 vibrant. Everything has been fresh and new. The things are going to happen and, and they're going to be getting a little bit tougher. And since starting this series, I've tried to regularly remind you about the place and the purpose of the book of Acts uh, with the unique role that it fills in the biblical canon. Acts really is volume two of Luke's gospel. This is gospel continued. Um, these books, both uh, his, his, his gospel and the book of Acts, intersect at the point of Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension and whereas luke's gospel focuses on how jesus established his kingdom on earth the book of acts really focuses on how jesus is expanding that kingdom and that includes as we'll see today how the church was growing not only in number but in maturity so if you would please stand with me for the reading of god's word we're once again we're in acts chapter six i'll be reading verses one through six this is the word of the Lord. Now when these, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, there is a notable shift here in the narrative of the book of Acts, a change you can almost feel. Things are about to get very hard for the church in Jerusalem. Clouds of persecution are on the horizon, which are going to press the church and actually, in God's providence, are going to serve to spread the good news of the gospel to other places, like Samaria and Antioch and even Africa. In the meantime, the church is growing, growing not only in number but in maturity, and as we see in our passage, that meant that the church... And the apostles were going to have to make some adjustments to the ministry of the church to address a problem and to really accommodate the growing needs of the body. You see, while the apostles show us in this passage the importance, really the the primacy of the ministry of the word, they also show us how that ministry is supposed to produce a ministry of works. That's the main takeaway we have from this passage, the main idea. The ministry of the word produces a ministry of service. Now, last week, we talked about how God's word prevails, how it prevails not only over God's enemies, but also how it prevails in the hearts and the lives of his people. And that's really the principle that's at work in our passage this morning. As we look at what Luke has recorded for us, we're we're really going to be gaining a better perspective on the way that God worked not only to expand the early church in terms of numbers, but also to grow it up into Christ. And this text, I think, really works to our benefit to instruct us uh, as we seek to grow into Christ as well. Luke brings us face-to-face with some of the practical realities of living life together as a local church and he gives us a guide for how we should order our priorities as a church. There's a lot here that's meant to instruct us uh, in how to handle controversy, and even a warning to be on our guard about some of the tactics of Satan as he seeks to drive wedges and to divide the church. Finally, we see that this passage teaches us how we are to strive in the Spirit, by grace, to be bearing the fruit of God's Word, committing ourselves to Christ-like service. So I have three points for you this morning, Uh, as usual. uh, These really are three handholds to to just help guide us through the text as we tease out some of these important lessons together. So we'll be looking first at some of the growing pains of the church. We'll be looking at growing pains. We'll also be looking at how the church committed itself to be all in together. Uh, And then finally, we'll be looking at the serving seven. So growing pains, all in, and the serving seven well first off let's look at some of these growing pains it is hard to read the book of acts and not to be excited about everything that luke tells us was going on in the early church signs and wonders were being done by the apostles people were being healed Uh, those who were oppressed by unclean spirits were being set free Um, it's like the ministry of jesus is just continuing on just through Jesus' disciples and that were meant to make that connection. Uh, the gospel was having a real impact. It was bearing fruit. People all across the city and even the region of Jerusalem were being saved as they heard about the glory of the risen king. Uh, the spirit was at work in visible, incredible ways. And really, aside from the Jewish leaders, we see that the people held the apostles and the church in high esteem, even if they didn't ultimately join with them. Out from where I'm sitting, things in the church look pretty ideal, right? I mean, this is the kind of church you want to be part of, a place where the word is being preached powerfully and clearly, where hearts of the people are being joined together as one, where people are caring for one another and taking care of one another's needs in this loving community that the Holy Spirit is bringing. Uh, This is good, exciting stuff, and and it, it brings me joy to see such vibrant life really in the church. I hope it does you as well. I mean, this is the kind of vibrancy that we all want. And it really, this is the kind of, it kind of reminds me of the joy and the excitement of having a new baby where you're just so jacked up on adrenaline. You, you don't want to sleep. You just want to hold them and you want to show them off to everyone and hear the oohs and ahs. And then that first night comes and the adrenaline wears off and that sprint turns into a marathon. And suddenly, it's a long road to maturity beginning. The church in Jerusalem was growing rapidly and there's a lot to be excited about more than ever luke says believers were being added to the lord multitudes of both men and women but we see that as god added more and more people to the church a problem arose as well and luke tells us about this in verse one he says that a complaint came up by the hellenist believers against the hebrew believers because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of the church Now, Luke has already given us a little bit of background about what was happening. Uh, He's already told us that after Pentecost, uh, the believers in Jerusalem were leveraging their resources and taking care of one another's needs. Uh, People like Barnabas were selling property and they were giving it to the apostles to be distributed to any who had need. In the ancient world, no one was more vulnerable than widows and orphans. It was already customary in Jewish culture to care for widows and orphans. In in Psalm 68 verse 5, God himself is called the father of the the fatherless and the protector of widows. In Isaiah chapter 10 verses 1 through 2, God declares woe to those who decree iniquitous Decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people from their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they make the fatherless their prey. So clearly God makes caring for the vulnerable a priority. And we see that being played out here in the church in Jerusalem. Uh, James actually tells us uh, that he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So the church took this, this duty seriously. Paul actually tells Timothy, honor widows. That is to care for them and for their needs. And he even indicates in his, in his letter to Timothy that the early church had a system uh, to enroll widows, to care for them, especially those who had no, no family. Uh, that The church was actually to take them in and to care for them as if they were their own mothers. So in the rapid expansion of the church of Jerusalem, we see this was happening, but we see that some people were being left out the care of some of these widows who were part of the church, specifically the Hellenistic ones, were getting missed. Now, I don't think this was because of a lack of resources so much as it was an an administrative oversight, although from the way that this complaint is represented, it's possible, at least from the Hellenist point of view, that they felt this oversight was actually intentionally targeted at them. Now, Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews who were born or who lived abroad outside of Israel. Uh, For whatever reason, they had grown up in places like Crete, Rome, Tarsus, Syria, and so on. And Greek uh, was really the common language of the day, sort of like English is now. So they would have grown up primarily speaking Greek. Likely, they had grown accustomed to Greek customs as well. And so, uh, whereas uh, Jews in, in, in Israel typically spoke Aramaic, Uh, these would have spoken Greek. And because of that, we know from, from history that they were kind of looked down upon. It was typical for Hellenistic Jews really actually to move to Israel in their old age because they wanted to die and to be buried in the promised land. So it's not surprising there would have been a significant number of Hellenistic widows living in Jerusalem at this time. And we know that after Pentecost, many of the Hellenistic Jews who had traveled to Jerusalem for the feast, who had then come to faith, decided to stay so that they could be there with the church. As a result, uh, they would have been particularly vulnerable because they lacked the resources and the connections of their Aramaic-speaking brothers and sisters. Now, it's really hard, as we look at this, to say whether or not the Hebrew Christians were intentionally neglecting the needs of these widows to care for their own. But it certainly seems like the Hellenistic believers thought so. At minimum, the needs of this minority were being overlooked because people's focus was elsewhere. So we're seeing how the biases of the culture were apparently spilling over into the church and affecting it. Now, to this point in the book of Acts, we've seen Satan trying to assault the church. He had assaulted the church on two fronts. First, he had put pressure on the church through these Jewish leaders who had opposed the gospel. But we see that that only caused the church and the apostles to share the gospel more enthusiastically. Then he tried to infect the church with sin through Ananias and Sapphira. But God acted quickly and defended the purity of the church, and the believers had only grown in their fear and their reverence for God and His holiness. Now it appears that Satan is attacking the church on a third front by sowing division in the church, playing to the inward biases of these believers. Now this is a subtle but effective strategy. Though at this time the church was pretty much made wholly up of Jews, it still had an international flavor to it because it was made out of Jews who were from lots of places throughout the Roman Empire. They shared one faith in one Lord. They had partaken of one baptism and received one spirit. Luke tells us how the believers were living together, being of one heart and soul. But in the rapid increase of the church, we see that an oversight had occurred which threatened to put a crack in that unity. The Hellenistic widows were not being cared for in the same way as the Hebrew widows were being cared for. And categories within the church itself were beginning to form so that there was a real threat of division. Whether this was intentional or not, the issue this issue had the potential to grow into a real disaster. Churches have become divided. People have really acted in hateful ways towards other professing believers over issues that are lesser than this. Deep-seated biases are not thrown off easily, and it's easy for us really to prioritize the needs of fellow believers that we have more in common with than to really care for the needs of fellow believers who are different from us. Never in my life have I ever seen the church in America so divided as it became in 2020. Things got real, personal, real fast, and divisions in our culture spilled over into the pews. Now, I think that the primary reason for these widows being overlooked was administrative. We also have to consider that there was a distinct difference between the way that some of these widows were being treated as opposed to the way that other widows were being treated, and it happened to reflect this cultural bias of the day. Perhaps this was simply because the Hellenistic widows lacked the connections of their, the Hebrew uh, widows, or perhaps they were intentionally being ignored. Either way, this was a big oversight, which, though it may have started small, even innocently, had the potential to disrupt the unity of the body. Now, for most of my life, I have been part of small churches where people know each other deeply and personally. In this period between Pentecost and the scattering of the church in the book in, in Acts chapter 8, the church grows in a staggering rate. Uh, Luke has actually, he just stops telling us the number of believers um, because they're, they're, it's, it's growing so quickly. Uh, but some estimates put it around 20,000 at this point. How exciting it must have been to see the gospel at work like this. I mean, can you imagine in the course of a few months the church going from 120 people hiding out in a room to 20,000? It's astonishing. But as exciting as it would have been to have been there, to see this, to be part of this even, we need to see that such explosive growth is not everything. By telling us about this situation, I think God is actually warning us, whether we're a big church or a small church, about, the da- about dangerous oversights that can creep into the church so that we miss out on our responsibility to one another. It's a warning here big or small, about the development of cliques where we really only care about a few people in the church and not the body as a whole. It is all too easy for those things to form and for us to just spend time with the people we're comfortable around so that we actually begin to ignore the needs of others, people whom God has put us into covenant with, to love. So this is a warning to check our biases at the door. To regard no one according to the flesh, but rather to regard them through Christ's eyes, according to the Spirit. Related to that, it's important for us to realize that there is a sort of growth that is more important than numerical growth. That we're called to grow up into Christ together, even as we commit ourselves to the work of expanding the kingdom through the sharing of the gospel. That's why we're instructed to count others more highly than we count ourselves, to embrace hearts of humility, to follow the example of Christ, to be eager to love even those who, for whatever reason, we have a hard time loving. By love, we prove that the love of Christ dwells in us. The gospel changes the way that we view ourselves, and it changes the way that we that we view each other, because fundamentally it changes us. It brings about an unearthly sort of unity, which brings God's people together, Otherwise, who, people who would really otherwise have very little in common. Christ's call goes to every nation, tribe, and tongue. It awakens the dead. It brings life into dead hearts, and it makes us one in Him, setting us on a path together, to build one another up in holiness, and to commit ourselves to being all in for the cause of Christ. And that brings us to see our second point this morning, which is to be all in as a church. Now passages like, a, like this really should uh, be a challenge to us, to make us rally, to make us more committed to serving one another than when we first read them. But before we look at the way that the church corrected this oversight, we really need to stop and consider the priority of the apostles here, how they dealt with this situation, and really their method for producing this ministry of service in the church. In verse 2, Luke says that the 12, that is the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the church to themselves. Now, this was a lot of people. I don't know where they all met or whether they called representatives from the people, uh, as it was common to do in that day. But either way, Luke tells us that the full number of believers was represented there. And they said to them, they said to the people, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now when this complaint arose in the church, I think the apostles saw how critical the situation really was. They saw how the church was growing. And this is an important milestone really in its maturity because we see an expansion here of leadership within the body. The apostles recognized their own limitations. They saw that they could not fulfill the calling that they had to the ministry of the word and uh, and simultaneously administrate over the distribution of these resources to those who needed it. So they had to make a judgment call here. And their decision and their process for making that decision is really important for us to learn from as we think about the priorities of the ministry, even of our church. The apostles say that it would not be right for them To neglect, that is to give up, the preaching of the word to serve tables. Now, let me clarify here that they are not in any way saying that uh, that making sure all these widows had food to eat was unimportant. That's not what they're saying, not at all. The apostles were men with limited time and energy, and the needs of the church had grown. They had been called, first and foremost, by Jesus to be witnesses to his death and resurrection. They had been authorized by Christ to preach and to teach. And they had been uniquely gifted by the Spirit to lead uh, with a sort of unique authority. The priority of their calling was the ministry of the Word. And that's important because the ministry of the Word is what produces, by the grace of God, a ministry of service in God's people. This is not the apostles' show. This is Jesus working through all of his people. And we see that represented here in how the apostles tackled this problem. Now, let's say that the apostles had reversed this decision. And they had said, oh, it it is is not right for us to to spend all of our time in our study or or preaching from the pulpit here uh, to to neglect the tables. Let's go do that. Now, if they had committed themselves to full time to ensuring that the widows got food uh, and what they needed, uh, then what would have happened? Let's just think about it. Well, you have had a lot of full tables, but you would have had even more starving souls. The reason the apostles say that it would not be right for them to neglect this, the ministry of the Word is because they understood rightly that the Word of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, is what produces the works of God in and among His people. If you want a tree to bear fruit, then you must ensure first and foremost that it is being nourished at the root. Apples come from trees that are planted in good soil. And the care of widows and orphans, which James calls pure religion, comes from hearts that are rooted in Jesus and are being nourished by his word. The apostles aren't trying to avoid service, and they aren't speaking presumptuously as if the service of widows was below them. They were speaking in wisdom, understanding that the church can only flourish when it's being fed a regular diet of God's word. That's how the church had come to be in the first place, through the preaching of the gospel. The care of these widows really was the result of that ministry of the word. So it's important that we as a church see that same priority that the the apostles had, and that we commit ourselves to this same model. God's word is powerful. The Bible describes it as a double-edged sword that pierces through the darkness, that makes the wounded whole. God's word is what calls us to God's ministry, to one another and to the world. If we hope to be doing the works of the kingdom, we must first and foremost be devoted to the word of our king, just as the apostles were. Now, Even as the apostles prioritized this ministry of the word, we see that they did not neglect the ministry of service in the church. Instead, they found a way to to facilitate that. They expanded the ministry by asking the church to select seven men whom they would then appoint to that duty. There are a couple things to notice about this decision. First, even though the apostles show here the priority of the ministry of the word in the church, since the ministry of the word is what produces a ministry of service in it, they also indicate to us how important this ministry of service in the church really is. In 1 John 3, verse 18, we read this. John says, John, one of the apostles says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So if the apostles were preaching the message of how God so loved the world by sending His only begotten Son to die as a sacrifice for sin, but then the church did not love each other, but rather neglected such a service, then they would have been, in fact, putting barriers up to the truth. The gospel of grace not only reconciles us to God, it actually reconciles us to each other. We cannot claim to love God if we do not also love those whom He has created in His image. Just as, as, as breath comes from the lips of a, of a person who's alive and it shows that they're alive, so also a ministry of loving service shows that the life of Christ is in us, that the word of the gospel really has taken effect in our hearts. That's why James says that faith without works is dead. The second thing we need to see about the way that the apostles responded to this situation is that they show how All believers are called to minister. All believers are called to minister. The church is not a corporation. We are not a business that offers services or a product that we exchange for a profit. We are a body. A body that consists of many unique members, each individually called and joined together in a covenant of love. If you are a believer, if you are in Christ, then you have the Spirit of God living in you. One Spirit. And that Spirit is what is equipping you for your unique kingdom service in the context of His church. Jesus didn't call His apostles to do everything. Instead, we see how the Spirit had actually equipped others. These men who were selected by the church to serve, to fill in this administrative gap so that the ministry of the word could go on as well as this ministry of service. As members of this body, we all have a part to play. God has not called or equipped everyone to teach or to preach. Some of you are much better at administration and acts of service. Some of you are uniquely skilled at picking up on people's needs and making sure that they're met. But no one, no one who is in Christ, who has received the Spirit, is without some sort of calling to service in the church. By expanding this ministry, the, the apostles demonstrate to us that we are called to be all in, in this mission of exalting Jesus together as a church. We each have a place to play, a part to play. As Peter explained in 1 first, first Peter chapter 4, verse 11, whoever speaks... Let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength God supplies, so that in all things God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. The third thing we see here about the way the disciples handled this situation is we see that they warn us about the dangers of micromanagement. They warn us about the dangers of micromanagement. Now, this one, I have to admit, feels a little bit personal, but it's important for us all to see this point. The problem with pastors who are micromanagers isn't just that they tend to burn themselves out. It's that they actually rob the church of the blessing of ministry, and they facilitate apathy in the church. Honestly, it goes both ways. Apathetic churches drive pastors and leaders... To micromanagement as much as micromanaging pastors drive churches to be apathetic. Christ has not called us to just come and to be served. He has called us to serve one another. We have to take that responsibility. He has called us each to be all in. All in in the sense that we're all called to play a part in the work of his church, and all in in the sense of how we are called to spend ourselves in his service. We must all be careful to guard against the bystander effect where we tell ourselves, oh, I'll leave that to the professionals. Someone else will do it. Rather, we have to take responsibility for one another to see the task that's laid before us, to eagerly look for ways in which we can use our talents and our opportunities and our resources to care for one another. That brings us to our third point this morning, the serving seven. Well, Luke tells us that the whole gathering of the church was pleased with this solution that was offered by the apostles. And so they chose seven men as instructed, which included Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Now, these are all Greek names which is noteworthy because it shows us the heart of the church. As you had the entire assembly of the believers here, you had Hebrew Christians, people who spoke Aramaic, people who maybe previously had these biases. And yet, when they called these men together, they, they called men who would care for this as if it was their own. We see that they chose men who had these Greek names. Now, it's difficult to say uh, whether or not all of these men were Hellenistic Jews, since it is common for Jews, even in Israel, to have, uh, at this point, to have both a Hebrew name and a Greek name. Uh, case in point, Saul and Paul. It's really the same name. Okay, so these have, but, but by listing the names as he's done, I think Luke has shown us how the church worked together to ensure that they had selected men who were going to make sure the needs of these Hellenistic widows were met. This was a step of unity. Now, two of these names stick out to us. One of them is going to be really important in the next few weeks that we have together. Uh, Stephen and Philip, uh, we are going to see them as we continue in Acts, that these two men actually play a really important role in the church, not only in the way they were called uh, to this ministry to serve this need, but also for the way that God used them in the expansion of the church to other places. Both of these men are actually, uh, we see, gifted speakers. Uh, Philip is the only person, uh, really in the book of Acts, and I think in the Bible, who's called the evangelist. Stephen, as we'll soon see, is the first Christian to be killed for his faith as he was preaching the gospel. So, just because they were called to to serve in this way does not mean that it excluded them from serving in other ways. We see that besides being fit for the task and having these other qualities, as Stephen and Philip had, it's it's actually important to see how these seven men met the qualifications that the apostles had set before the church. These weren't just anybody. This wasn't a popularity contest. Instead, we see they want to make sure they're qualified. So in verse 3, the apostles had said to pick out from among the congregation seven men who were of good repute. So that means they were upstanding, and they were trustworthy. They had a good name. Now you can see why that would be important because they're going to be handling money. They're going to be handling the resources of the church. They need to be above board. And so to ensure that everyone is being cared for, they say, pick seven men who are of good repute. Second, we see that they were full of the Spirit. Now according to Peter in Acts chapter 5, verse 32, the gift of the Holy Spirit is for everyone who obeys God and believes the gospel. So if you're in Christ, then the Holy Spirit is, has been given to you. That's who convicted you of your sins. That's who opened your eyes to the glory of Christ. That's who was at work in you uh, to give you faith, to effect God's call on your life. That's who is working on you even now to give you a love for God and a love for others. That's who equips you to serve according to the way God has called you to serve. So when when the apostles say to select men who are full of the Spirit really meaning to the church that they should pick out men in whom the work of the spirit is truly evident who were living out the gospel in a very visible way in whom the power of god was particularly evident as we'll see in the case of stephen these were strong believers who were an encouragement to others third we see that the apostles say to pick men who were full of wisdom now this is going to be a big job something that took discernment and understanding this complaint had arisen in the first place because a need wasn't being met. And so the church was, was going to be counting on these men to administrate the resources of the church well. So this was going to take wisdom. Fourth, we see that they were to be approved and that they were going to be appointed to wield authority by the apostles. So they were selected by the church and they were approved by the apostles. And we see actually when, these, when the church set these seven men before uh, the apostles that they prayed and they laid their hands on them. That's a really interesting act. Uh, the laying on of hands previously was used in the Old Testament when a person was making a sacrifice. It indicated a transfer of sin from the person who was making the sacrifice to the animal that was being sacrificed. But in this case, it's really meant to show the transfer of authority to these men to do the task. It's important to see here that these men did not select themselves or appoint themselves to this position, nor were they wielding their own authority. The church is not a place for politics, where people use their influence or their personal attributes, their likability to gain positions of authority. These men were being called by the church to serve, and we see that they received authorization from the church to do this service. Now, I've been in churches where men were called to serve as deacons or even as pastors because there was something about them that the church just liked or because they had a more likable personality or because maybe they gave a lot of money to the church and people felt obligated they should be in leadership or even because their spouses pushed them to do it. That is not the model of the early church. That is not the model that the church is called to follow. Now, as we look at this, I do want you to know there's a little bit of debate among scholars as to whether or not these seven men were the first deacons. Uh, even though Luke doesn't use the term deacon here, I think he has clearly indicated these men fit the qualifications of a deacon and that they were doing the work of a deacon that we see laid out in Paul's letters. So I'm of the opinion that we should consider them at least Prototypical deacons. So these are either proto deacons or they're full fledged deacons. Either way, a a pattern is being laid here for the church. The main thing you need to see about them is that they were ministering to the church, that they were serving the church, that they were chosen by the church to focus on this ministry of service. And that as such, they ministered to the church in a unique and crucial way which allowed the church to be focused on the ministry of the Word as well as to care for one another and for people outside the church even in this ministry of service. So as the church grew in number, it also matured in ministry. These seven men, these, these deacons, if I can call them that, were a big part of the growth of the church and of God's defense of the church against division. And looking at the way that God used these men, I just want to take a moment... Just to commend to you, the deacons in our church, it, it is very much a service that gets done that doesn't get a lot of attention. And my, my, my goal here is not to put a spotlight on them, but just to commend to you. In, in 1 Timothy 3.13, Paul says that those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That standing, that confidence that Paul speaks of here comes because of the way that deacons are called and equipped by the church to serve in this special way. And I want you to know, church, that I am thankful, so thankful to get to serve alongside men like Tim and Tom and Justin. They have served you and they serve you well in ways that you have no idea. So I want to commend them to you as examples of what it means to love and to serve sacrificially. God calls us each to minister to one another. We are not all called to serve in the same ways, but we are all called to serve. As a church, we are called to prioritize God's word because it's God's word that bears out that Christian service. So, learning from the example of the early church, let's each take a look at the opportunities we have to live out this gospel and let's commit to being all in as a church as we grow in grace, together. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to stand before you this morning and thank you for the way that even as the early church grew in number, it also grew up into Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the wisdom of the apostles that we see here uh, as as you combated division and disunity in the church um, and how that even as they prioritized the ministry of the word, it promoted a ministry of service so that the needs of people were being met and the love of Christ was not just talked about but experienced. And Father, we want to pray that, that this same ministry, this ministry of service, would, would, would flow out in our lives, that it would bind us together as a church, that your word would take root in us and would bear forth fruit, so that we would love each other as you have loved us, so that we would regard one another not according to the flesh, not by according to what we have in common with, with interests or where we're from, or just things that maybe even the the food that we like to eat, or how old we are. But Father, I pray and said that you would give us eyes that see the beauty of Christ in each, and what you're doing in each one of us. And that as a result, we would commit ourselves to loving you by loving one another. And I pray, Father, that even as that love is displayed, that the world around us would see that the gospel really is true and would praise Christ who is king over all. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our final song this morning is uh, really submitting ourselves to God and asking him to bring us into his service. So if you would please stand together as we sing Take My Life and Let It Be.